But now that we're looking at Romans 5, let's go ahead and, and read that all together. I want to read the whole passage to us so that we get it in our, in our brain, in our system, before talking about it. So Romans 5, chapter 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned to death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So as we come to this passage, uh, last week you got to hear about the beginning of Romans 5, where it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And so we have a, a great hope of eternal life, and there's assurance for that eternal life. And as we come to the last half of chapter 5, Paul's going to give us a little bit of reasoning about why you have that hope and why it's so secure. Um, so really, the, the whole chapter is a chapter on assurance, and why you can have assurance that eternal life in Christ is, is sure and available to you, to those who believe. Um, and as I was studying this, I, uh, I used uh, mostly two commentaries, one of them by uh, Douglas Moo, um, who is a great uh, commentator uh, on the book of Romans, probably the best commentator in our age, in our time, on the book of Romans. And he gives a lot of good insight. And uh, I was reading for this, and I had to take a class, and I used Dr. Moo's book in Bible college. And I remember uh, sitting in my dorm room reading this section on Romans 5, and my friend from a couple rooms down came in, and he said, Hey, uh, uh, I'm getting dinner with Dr. Moo today at Wheaton College, because he was a professor at Wheaton. He said, You want to come? And I looked at him, I said, Well, I'm reading his book right now, so maybe I should come. <laughs> And so I was thankful I had written in the book and I had the memory as I was studying that I had dinner with Dr. Moo tonight and uh, went and met with him. And just a, a reminder for us that sometimes these guys that write this stuff can seem real, you know, untouchable, heady, and smart. And it was just neat to sit down with him and have dinner. And he didn't really, you know, talk about much other than his grandkids. He liked talking about his grandkids. We talked a little bit about Romans. Um, some people around the table asked some questions, but for the most part, he just seemed like a, a normal guy and uh, loved his family and loved the Lord. And that was just really encouraging to me that night to, uh, to see that. Um, 
someone who has uh, done so much work for the church in Romans. Um, so now let's, let's dive in. This section is divided into, in your outline, the first Adam and the second Adam, Christ. So we're going to see that Paul talks about the two Adams, Adam, the first Adam, and then Christ as the second Adam. And so we see in verse 12 that sin came into the world through one man, who is Adam. And this passage teaches us two terms you see in your outline there. Uh, the idea of original sin and actual sin is, is taught here. Original sin and actual sin. Does anybody want to remind us, what, what would we say original sin is? Yeah, okay, so the sin inherited from that one man, Adam, the first man, Adam. So then what would actual sin be? Okay, so yeah, the, the sins that you have actually committed personally, right? Um, and this is a distinction that has to be made and is made in this book, and there's been a lot of debate about it. That original sin, as, as taught from this passage, is something that's passed down from Adam. And then there's actual sin that we have committed. Therefore, just as sin came to the world through one man and death through sin, death spread to all men because all sinned. There was actual sin in each of us and inherited sin from Adam. So verse 12 is one of the most controversial verses in Romans where we, where we learn this, where it's taught. And it falls into a chiastic structure. Uh, that's a big word. So that simply just means in Scripture there are times that a, a, a structure of a poem or structure of an argument is based on a pattern that goes from A, and then it'll have other points like B, B, and it'll move down, but it'll move back at the end to that original argument A. So you can see there that it goes A, it goes to B, B, and then back to A, kind of on the same, same line as that first point where sin entered the world through one man, that's first, death then came through sin. Death also came to all people because all people sinned. And so the, the commentators point out this chiastic structure here and that there are uh, basically two things going on at the same time. You're a sinner because Adam sinned. You're also a sinner because you sinned. Those two things are being held at the same time. And there's a lot of debate about that and about whether the death that is promised for sin is spiritual or physical. I might ask you, what, in your reading of this passage, do you think that, that the death here spoken of is a spiritual death or a physical death? Yes. <laughs> the Presbyterian answer, yes. <laughs> Meaning both, right? And, and I think that, that, that Moo and Morris have concluded the same thing. He says that it mainly, they, they might emphasize mainly referring to spiritual death, which does conclude in a physical death. And just know there is argument about that. And in the, in the past, um, there's actually been more, I guess, commentators of old who focus on the physical death, that that's what it is. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which would be what? <laughs> How is it described in Genesis 3? 
physical death, yeah. But did he die spiritually? Right. Yeah. 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 Would you say it's it's uh, it's not a both and? I think it's both and. Yeah. Right. But they do die. Yeah. And we see that death uh, very quickly in the very next chapter of the killing of uh, brother of Abel's death. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. But also physical death being separated from the garden where they were not created to die. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a, a full and total. We're both physical and spiritual beings, and death has occurred in both spheres because of sin. Yeah, it's, it's, it's passed on that we're all inherited it from Adam. And so death has come from the sin of Adam. Yeah. So there has been a lot of debate about that. Know that. And I think it's, it's safe to say uh, from Scripture that um, there's a sense in which both, we are both dead spiritually and physically because of sin. Um, Paul attributes the death of all people to the, those two reasons. All die because all sinned and all die because Adam sinned. And how do we reconcile these? How do we reconcile that, that, that tension there that you were both um, condemned to death because of someone else, Adam, that you were in, inherited it from, and also because of your own sin? How do we reconcile those things? And uh, Paul views in this section Adam as being a representative of all humanity, a representative, that, that in him we all are represented. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned in him. So there's this idea of corporate solidarity is the, is the big term that's used, corporate solidarity. That in Adam, he, uh, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, we all were on his belt. And when he sinned, we were in there, that sin with him. He carried us with, uh, with him um, into that death and sin. And we all inherit it from him. So discussion question for us, this idea of corporate solidarity, that we can inherit sin from Adam like that, does that way of thinking seem strange? Or possibly hard to, to understand, or is it, is it fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't do the sin, so why am I being blamed for something Adam did? Yeah. 
Yeah, 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 it's, it's really hard in our uh, Western mindset to kind of grasp this because we're, we're pretty far removed from that mindset, very individualistic, yeah. Yeah, 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 it's true, yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah, you, you want to identify when it blesses you, but then you want to quickly be like, oh, well, I'm not part of that if that's, you know, anything bad. I'm, that's not me. I didn't do it. Yeah. Pick and choose. Yeah. Good. So, yeah, so we, we, we agree, I think, that it makes sense that it doesn't fit well into our mindset, this idea of corporate solidarity, but it is the truth of how, how it works and how God has ordered creation, um, that we are connected to Adam in a very... Uh, deep way, and that his sin is our sin, um, and none of us would have done better in that place, right? If any of us were put in the garden, it'd be pretty prideful to think that you or I would not have done the same as Adam, yeah. So now let's get to uh, verse 13. We looked at 12, moving on to verses 13 through 14, and we see that Paul takes a little detour. He takes a little detour. The structure of this passage, you can flip over your page actually real quick, I just want to show you the structure uh, under 2b. Paul uses four just-as-so-also statements in this section to make his point. And you see, you see there that uh, you can look at the bold going down. It says, just as, just as, just as, just as, four times, immediately followed by a so-also. But that first one in verse 12, there's a just-as, and it has no so-also with it. It's the only one that doesn't. 
all the other ones in verse 18, 19, and 21 have their corresponding opposite, the just as, so also. But verse 12 doesn't. And commentators notice that there is a distinct break in the passage. And you even see in your Bible probably in, in the end of verse 12 that there is a dash put there because there is a break in which it jumps to verse 13 where it says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. And so uh, the rest of Paul's argument, you would think that right there he would have had a so also, but he doesn't. He takes a little break from his argument in verses 13 and, through, and 14. So you can flip back over. And we see that he takes a detour to explain the law. For sin, indeed, verse 13, was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. And so the question is, why did Paul feel the need to throw in something about the law here and then quickly move on with the rest of his argument? And it's clear that he, that he did that as a small detour. And uh, commentators will, will point out, which I think is, is, is probably uh, true, probably a good point, is that the Jews believed that the law, and it was, it was a very important part of salvation history. Very important part. That when Moses gave the law, God was, was intervening with his people in a very uh, new and specific way uh, for their salvation. But he wants to make sure that the Jews understand what that reason was. So I think that we, as we read scripture, we see the tendency for righteousness through works, and Paul is constantly teaching against that, and the, the desire of the human heart constantly to go back to works, and we see, um, we see that even in, in the Psalms that David has to talk about how uh, righteousness does not come through the law, and God does not desire your sacrifices. He desires obedience and, and all these things. And so Paul needs to make clear to the Jews and to all of us that, that sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but it wasn't counted because there was no law yet. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. So Adam, Adam through Moses, they didn't have the law until Moses, but yet all these people were dying without the law. Does that make sense? But he says there is no, there is no, how does he put it? But sin is not counted where there is no law. So if sin is not counted where there is no law, why were they dying? And so you have to wrestle with what is Paul talking about here? And I think that we, we can understand that the law has been written on our conscience, right? And that men have always known what they should do. God has written the law on our conscience. And that everyone from Adam to Moses, whether they realized it or not, were sinning against God and suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Man has always done that, right? And so in order to make their sin more clear, in order to make it, the, 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 the sin more great, the law comes in. And so it becomes clear to everyone that these are the specific ways in the law that you transgress against God. And so the law had, had a way of actually increasing sin, as we see the argument goes here. So he wants to be clear with the Jews that the coming of the law didn't save you. That wasn't your salvation. The law can only condemn you and show you how much you need your salvation. The law came in and made sin, made your situation actually worse. He wants to be clear that their situation is not better, but worse. The law has pointed out their sin. And I don't know if this is a good illustration or not, but I know for if you, if you have kids, 
that there are certain things, maybe as your kids are growing up, that you haven't actually told them they're not allowed to do, right? But they kind of know when they've done it and they look at you, they've got that guilty look. Like they, they already knew they shouldn't have done that, even though you never told them not to do that. Our daughter loves to color with crayons, and we have them usually scattered around the living room. And she spends her day back and forth going to scribble and then going to do something else and then going to scribble. And she's realized that there are certain things in the house that you probably shouldn't draw on with those crayons. And she had uh, a moment where she went with the crayon to go on the wall, and I'd never told her not to color on the wall before. I had never had to deal with it yet. And she went to do it, and she looked at me with this look like, I'm not sure if this is okay or not. Like, she knew that there's probably a sense in which that might not be okay. I had never told her it wasn't. But when I told her, do not draw on the wall, then that was a law to her that now she knows, right? Now she knows going forward, whereas it would have been wrong for her to draw on the wall, right? Before she knew that, it would have been wrong. But now that she knows she's not supposed to do it, she's been told that, isn't it more wrong if she still does it? And so I think the law works like that in that we have the law in our hearts, but once it comes and it's clearly do not covet, do not lie, do not have any God before me, when those things are made clear in the law, we are all the more guilty of them. Uh, I, I don't know if that's a good illustration or not, but it helped me. <laughs> so Paul wants to be clear here with the understanding of the law and the role of salvation history. Now at the end of that, it says... Uh, Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So we see here that Adam is a pattern or type of the one who is to come, who is Christ. And we see um, in other parts of Scripture that Paul alludes to that, to there being types of Christ. And for some of us, that language is new. I remember uh, uh, years ago, I didn't understand what, is, what does it mean for something to be a type of Christ. Um, and we, we won't get into that today, but Scripture does work in a sense of it's, it's revealing this greater David, this greater, truer Israel, this greater person um, who is Christ Jesus, that the law and the sacrifice and everything is pointed forward to him. All of Scripture has been pointing forward to him as the substance of what we hope for. And so Adam was a, a type of the one to come, and Paul uh, makes this clear as he uses his just as so also comparison just as so also comparison in this chapter he compares the two atoms and in hebrew that word adam literally means human being adam is human being and so the first adam brought death and the second brought life so this passage is making a clear argument about the first Adam and the second Adam, what does that have to do with the discussion question? What do you think that does for arguments about the historicity of Adam himself? Because there are, there are a lot of people who will say that Genesis uh, is, that might not be a literal historical Adam, it might be figurative. So how does Romans 5 uh, line up with, with arguments about the historicity of Adam? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's part of it. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's part of it. 
Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly, I agree. It gives us uh, the reasoning for death. It gives us the reasoning for that. And the argument aligns Paul with, if, if Adam, if you say Adam was a, a concept and not a reality, then by his argument, Christ must not be a reality, but a concept, right? So really, I think that this passage just shows Paul's belief in historical Adam, right? That his argument is based on a, a historical person who lived. And that, that person was a type of another man, the God-man who lived. So I guess if you're going to say that Genesis, that he's not a historical Adam, then you're going to have to say that Paul was wrong too. <laughs> I don't want to go there. <laughs> um, so Paul uses, as we've already seen, the just as, so also statements. We see uh, in verse 18, just as Adam brought condemnation, so also Christ brought justification in life. And uh, in verse 16, I'm going to go back a little bit. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So Paul does a little bit of comparison between the free gift and the trespass, the sin, that the free gift is not like the trespass. Many have died through that trespass, but many receive life through the free gift. It's opposite. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So there's this free gift in the second Adam Christ that comes, and it follows many trespasses. It follows many, many sins. And yet that free gift is different in that it brings life where the many trespasses brought death and condemnation. So you just see Paul emphasizing his argument in, in several different ways. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, verse 17, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. So all have received the condemnation of Adam, but all who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. So once again, in another way, he's just emphasizing this difference between the death in Adam and the life in Christ. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass, and this is where he's probably the most clear with his illustration, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. These two things are, are in comparison. Adam's one sin plunged everyone into death. If that's true, he's saying, it's also true that there can be one man whose obedience and perfection can give all life. Okay? That's, that's the argument. And so if you're not going to say that corporate solidarity, as we were talking about with Adam, is true, then you can't say that you can receive anything from Christ, right? Because it's based on being able to have solidarity with him as well. You cannot receive life in any other way. It comes through the one man and his obedience, his one act of righteousness for all men. Verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so you see again this argument. One made us sinners, one made us righteous. 
Now, these comparisons emphasize our assurance and our certainty of salvation. Paul is trying to make it clear that much more, if this was true of Adam and sin came through Adam, much more will you receive grace and life through Jesus Christ. That he has so far overcome all that Adam did, all the sin, that it is assured to you and certain that you may receive life in Christ. But there are some who could take this, and you may read it and be like, well, it says that one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Okay, that's all of us. There's no human who's not sinful, right? But then it says one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So is this, is Paul teaching universal salvation is the question. Is Paul teaching that just because of Christ and his work that automatically every person in history is going to receive the abundance of life in him as they received the death in Adam? So does this passage teach that? <laughs> I see head just shaking there. Why not? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. So, yeah, when you come to a passage like this that, that maybe isn't, wasn't clear to you at first, but you know what the, what the whole of Scripture clearly teaches. The whole of Scripture doesn't teach universalism, right? So if you come to this passage, and it may seem like that at first, we look deeper and be like, oh, well, that's, that can't be the argument in this one place, right? That the whole of Scripture teaches something. And really, it, um, the federal headship should show us, uh, like, you, like you were saying, um, Tim, that under Christ, we receive life, and under Adam, we receive death. Well, how were you brought into Adam but through physical birth? And how are you brought into Christ? It's through spiritual birth, right? And I do like the way that, that Mu puts it. I put the quote there. He says, all those who are in Adam die. Similarly, all those who are in Christ live. But whereas we are in Adam simply by virtue of being born, we are in Christ only by being born again. And we uh, come to be under his headship through that spiritual new birth that God works in us by the Spirit where we receive all the blessings of Christ and all that he has done and his obedience and his righteousness are accounted to us, um, that we might have life with him.
so as we, as we close, you see that this section ends with another reference to the law. Paul throws it in there again just to make sure he's clear. He did it in the beginning and he does it at the end of the passage where he brings back verse 20. He says, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that it's clear that in salvation history, the law isn't the thing that can save you by your obedience to it. For in fact, it made your situation worse and just showed you how far you are from salvation. We are from salvation. But it is where grace abounded in Christ Jesus. That is where we receive salvation. Grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that little section in verse 20 is such potent gospel. It's such rich gospel. It makes the impossibility of you um, losing salvation in Christ if you know him so, so sure that people are going to misunderstand it. And you'll have to wait till next week to, to hear about chapter 6 where Paul has to, has, to dis, has to tell you, okay, this is the error you can run into. This is such a great truth, but this can lead you somewhere that's not true. So it's so great. It doesn't just mean that you can do anything because grace abounds. If your sin increases, oh, well, God's grace abounds more. That doesn't mean that you can just sin, 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 right? And so Paul in chapter 6 will address that next week. <laughs> so come back to hear more about how this actually pans out. Um, any questions as we close? Question. Yeah. Yeah. And also that, like, and as David says in other parts, Lord, I love your law. For the person who wants to be obedient and love the Lord, that's helpful if it's been made clear where is it a trespass. Oh, this is the things the Lord has clearly said in his word is sin, and that I want to make sure that I'm being, you know, obedient in as far as I'm capable by the Spirit. Yeah, it's a, it's a way for us to understand how uh, we can be uh, obedient to God. Yeah. Yeah, more accountable, yeah.
No. <laughs> that got really close. <laughs> I'm sure it will happen at some point in the near future. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for those comments, yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts? That was good. I hope this was uh, helpful for us all, <laughs> encouraging. I'll go ahead and pray so we can close.